Welcome to the Vandenack Weaver Legal Visionaries Podcast, brought to you by Interactive Legal. Here's your host, Mary Vandenack. Welcome to today's episode of Vandenack Weaver Legal Visionaries, a weekly podcast discussing updated legal news, evolving methods of providing legal service and law practice issues. My name is Mary Vandenack, founder and managing partner at Vandenack Weaver LLC. I'll be your host as we talk to experts from around the country about closely held business, tax, trusts and estates, legal technology, law firm leadership, and well-being. Before we start today's episode, I want to thank our sponsor. Here's a message from Interactive Legal. There's always a resistance to change, particularly with attorneys. Attorneys like to look back at what's worked in the past, and that makes a lot of sense. But when you realize that with a good automated drafting system, you can do a better job for your clients, deliver documents on a more timely fashion, in a more consistent and in a more costly manner. If you're not a subscriber to Interactive Legal, I urge you to go to interactivelegal.com and click on Request a Demo. And you'll be contacted about having a demonstration of interactive legal for you, which can be done right over the Internet. Don't have to leave your office. No salesperson will call. We can arrange it at a time inconvenient for you. So please go to interactivelegal.com and click on Request a Demo. Today's episode is going to be talking about financial controls for law firms. My guest today is John Bowers. John and I go back a few days now, and John's got a really solid background in law practice, having worked at a variety of firms, and I'm really proud that John has recently agreed to join our firm, but can you fill us in on your background, John? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me, Mary. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, my background um, is not usual, but uh, it did start in finance, Um, not that that's the only place my heart lies. Uh, But uh, 21 years ago, if you can believe it, I I joined the accounts payable department of a firm and have been in law ever since, uh, from uh, AMLAW 100 massive firms to um, the small law, as I like to call it. And um, business development has been a big portion of my background with leadership responsibilities all the way up through. Um, And most recently, uh, serving in an operational role, um, and now um, um, serving in a strategic role with your firm. And so we're going to talk today about financial controls in law firms. And I always find it interesting, not just in law firms, but business, that the financial controls, which you know, my, as you know, my background is accounting and finance, so that seems really basic to me. I'm surprised by the number of times that we talk to somebody or have a business or the number of times I've watched a bookkeeper or a business and had to say, um, um, do you guys have any financial controls here? <laughs> and so that's right. So can you just describe generally what we mean by financial controls? Yeah. I mean, in a nutshell, you know, I'm talking the, the standard operating procedures um, that law practices use to monitor and protect how their financial resources are utilized. Now, um, that sounds boring, but it's actually quite interesting. And before we get into the specifics of these strategies and tactics, it's important to remember that every law practice is made up of people. 
And so a very primary piece of the uh, pie when it comes to financial controls is people management. Um, More on that in a bit. Uh, But in short, uh, I'm talking ensuring good financial stewardship of your law practice. So in the technology arena, we have this concept called double factor authentication, right? Isn't essentially financial controls in part about the same type of thing? It's let's have a double factor authentication in finances. And that's a challenge, particularly in some of your smaller firms where you might have one person who's opening the mail, receiving the checks, things like that. Is that kind of a basic of financial controls? Yes, very precisely put, um, because I think folks uh, don't have the opportunity necessarily nowadays to get away from multi-factor authentication. Um, But that is really at the heart of what we're talking about in terms of financial controls. And why does it matter so much? I mean, I think, you know, in my practice, the amount of theft that I see internally is downright frightening. And is it this like sometimes that it's not going to happen to me thing going on that it's not taken with the seriousness that maybe it ought to be? Yeah, I think that's part of it. I I think it's an amount, an amount of overwhelming responsibility that folks have um, a friend, a lawyer friend of mine who runs a malpractice boutique uh, in St. Louis uh, always says that financial fraud, 95% of the time, are the people working at, is caused by the people working at the place. So, um, yeah, the the important part of this is to understand that the right hand knows what the left hand is doing uh, in order to protect people. Um, and, uh, of course, the resources as well uh, from fraud. Um, the other part of it that that should be very compelling is that maintaining cash flow performance um, is also at the heart of this. Um, Again, if if you have a variety of people touching the money coming in or going out the door, the efficiency slows down, which of course then has a problem when it comes to profitability. Um, so can you just explain, so you and I both have the financial backgrounds and understand what cash flow performance means, but some mm-hmm. listeners might not. Can you just clarify what you are saying when you use the term cash flow performance? Absolutely. Yeah. So what you want ideally is for as soon as the work is performed in law practices, that's time being entered, uh, not necessarily um, the finish of a case or a transaction, but the time from the time that the um, work and the time is entered into the billing system to the time that the money is coming into the door um, should be as optimized as possible. Um, and uh, some, sometimes that's just not the case. And, and we'll talk about that in a later podcast in terms of billing policy. Uh, but um, the cash optimization also is a function of not just decreasing expenses, um, but making sure that um, if you don't have to pay a big bill right now, you're holding on to it as long as you can um, on the going out the door. So that's my take on it. What would you say, Mary? I'm sure you've got um, your opinions on that. Well, I kind of agree with what you just said in that 
you know, there's a couple things. So we have like, and again, we're going to do billing on a different podcast, but a contemporaneous time entry policy, because you've got to get the time in. And I think the stats are, if you don't enter that time contemporaneously, you lose some large percentage. But the other thing that we do is we tell everybody the last week of the month that enter all client disbursements, get them all in because, you know, there's nothing that's more annoying because we close our period at the end of the month. There's nothing more than annoying than we get this pile of client disbursement requests that are, you know, can be significant amounts of money on the first after we've just closed our cycle. So we kind of have a policy where we do a cutoff a few days ahead and then we only make payments a couple times and we have a process where we review and say exactly what you said is, does that, when does that expense have to be paid and make sure it fits within that policy? Those are some of the things. What would you say are some of the basic financial controls? And what I'm hearing as we're talking, this isn't all about the, the financial controls are kind of all encompassing with respect to a law firm. And I think sometimes we think about it as financial controls to prevent theft on the checking account, but it's really, let's make sure that we don't have fraud and that we don't get you know money stolen out of the checking account. That's one. Let's make sure we don't have the bookkeeper stealing funds. Let's make sure we don't have somebody who's setting checks on their desk or shoving them in a desk drawer, which I've had happen, rather than getting those deposited. And then it's saying the resources in the law firm is the time. So we need to get that time entered. We need to figure out how to make sure the expenses are getting paid. It's, it's a big picture thing. But if we start with just some, you know, basic, what would you identify as the top three financial controls or, you know, whatever number you might want to recite as saying, these are like, if you don't have financial controls in place, this is what you ought to do today. Yeah, definitely. And, and primarily, and this is where it gets a little bit uncomfortable for the firm owners, um, is that there has to be a periodic review of financial statements. Yeah, that's boring. Um, and many lawyers uh, sometimes are very uncomfortable when it comes to looking at that sort of thing. But that level of financial literacy is unbelievably important um, because, um, like for your example of the client advances, if, if on the statement of cash flows uh, and the balance sheet for that matter, um, client advances just continue to add up, all that means is the firm. Um, is acting as a bank holding company, holding on to more cash. It's like um, a manufacturing company not caring about the amount of inventory that it is carrying on the shelves rather than simply selling it or not building it in the first place. And I think sometimes Um, some firms forget the IRS actually says that to the extent you're advancing funds on behalf of a client, that's a an asset. It's not an expense. So you can't even deduct it. So that becomes particularly important you get to the end of a tax period and you've written a bunch of checks, you can't expense it. You might be out cash and not be able to take any deductions for that, right? Exactly. Um, And we have a little um, party that I start every year in September to try to rush those things through and or say, hey, we might as well write this off now um, so that we aren't getting taxed on it. um, the other, another really practical thing that seems basic, but people have to revisit it at least annually is who has check signing authority. Oftentimes the old original, uh, name partner has check signing authority and is in Barbados for most of the year. 
Um, so you have to make sure banks still are checking that. You have to make sure that um, the person who is handling the money when it comes in does not have check signing authority on any money that's going out. Um, the Another basic uh, thing that is often overlooked or just isn't really formal enough is that bank reconciliations are for both operating and trust accounts are, are reconciled monthly. Um, it's amazing to me, again, how casual we can become with the firm's money, but also when it comes to trust other people's money. Um, and so it's deeply, deeply important to just have some really formal measures in place to make sure that you're being a good steward. See, on the uh, check signing authority, one of the cases I had for a client was the office, the trusted office administrator who I'd been warning them about for about five years had this policy where, so they had three partners and each of the partners had the authority to sign checks. And that was so that if one of them was in Barbados, somebody else could sign a check, right? Mm -hmm. But what the office administrator did was to go around, she would write a check to American Express and have partner one sign it. She would write another check to American Express and she would have partner two sign it. But the second check was actually for her own account to which she was charging, you know, trips to uh, Spain and such. And so that, you know, I run into that and I will tell you how we've addressed that. We've addressed that, that any requests for checks of a certain amount, copy all of the partners and that we have an authority that if I'm available, I sign, I approve and sign the check. And if I'm not available, so we kind of have an order on that to prevent that type of theft. Is there any other thoughts that you might have on that one? Oh, I, lo- I love that because, again, everybody is aware. Um, that, that's what it is, is everybody's just aware that we've got these measures in place and people are playing by those rules. Um, I love that. We are going to take a brief break from our episode for a word from one of our sponsors, Carson Private Client. Wealth planning focuses on liquidity management and charges you a fee based on a percentage of your assets. But entrepreneurs typically invest in their business, resulting in light liquidity. That requires a unique strategy. At Carson Private Client, we provide a proactive and holistic strategy for building and protecting your wealth. Our mission is to alleviate the stresses and the burdens of coordinating all of those financial strategies. Carson Private Client will work with your current team of advisors to customize a strategy that manages all aspects of your life and wealth, giving you back the time to focus on what matters most. Complex needs require sophisticated solutions. Reach out to our office at 402-779-8989 to schedule your consultation. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Okay, let's continue our episode. And the whole issue of bank reconciliations, and I know, like, you know, I have a 26-year-old son who doesn't even know how to reconcile a bank account. He just looks on, I think the whole online thing is part of that, right? It's how do you, you know, they just look at, my son looks at his account and says, oh, I have $100 in it. I guess I can go to Runza Hut and have a Runza today, right? (laughs) But in a law firm, that just doesn't make sense. So what do you think it is? Why does a basic like that get ignored? Um, Because everyone's busy doing higher order things. 
Um, and usually if there's a controller or um, at, you know, say mid-sized firms um, an accounting department, um, they're all scurrying doing, um, doing these things that are the finesse um, pieces that do need to get done in order to affect positively the, the bottom line profitability. But the building blocks get overlooked because it's far more interesting to, you know, research transactions that haven't gone through that are a big dollar amount than it is to just run the racks from last month. Um, so there's certainly, um, there certainly is an age aspect to it as well. Some people um, of a certain generation have never actually had a checkbook and um, gone line by line to make sure that everything that they paid out of their checkbook is in fact what has come out of the checking account. Um, and you know, there's a variety of reasons for that, but um, that's where you know, leadership has to come in and it's a very simple way to measure, hey, have we closed the books on the last month yet? <laughs> so you know, one of the things that's gotten really common is the electronic banking. And I will tell you that that's one place where I have not yet gone to, as much as I'm paperless and tech-oriented in, in every other manner, I have not yet allowed electronic payment of expenses because I don't know how you control that. Once you yeah. have a login and a password and you have the ability for somebody to transfer funds. So what? Is, how can you control that? So that is important to have multiple people have access to the same account well, and accounts, let's be honest, because usually there's at least an operating and a trust account. Um, and so you got to make sure that you have more than one person having a, um, access to that. Additionally, you've got to make sure um, more than ever that the bank racks are being done because if it's out of sight, it's out of mind. Um, and the pace that, that picks up with, with digital banking um, becomes obscene. And so, again, it, it, that's why it's so important to have the building blocks like check um, bank racks done every month. Um, so you, you have multiple people who have access to um, each account. You have one person that has um, overarching authority on, um, on you know, the let's say releasing of money of funds um, who has to again be different than the same than the person who is scanning in the funds or making deposits in some way. Um, um, a great example of that um, in, in a lot of intellectual property practices are the foreign um, council transactions where you've got, you know, a law firm in Italy making um, uh, uh, putting together uh, invoices for work that you've asked them to do for a given client. They go ahead and do that. And when they invoice, um, you've got one person who's on the intake side and making sure that, you know, all of the payments lined up, um, entering it into the electronic banking system in one way or another, and then a different person who is scheduling it for payment. Um, Again, you know, there, there's probably some way coming down the pike that AI is going to optimize all of that. Um, but clearly, a, the safest way is always to have multiple people involved. Um, 
again, not to, it, it does make it less efficient, but it's a, it's that that's kind of the spectrum when it comes to financial controls. Um, the more people you have involved, it's less efficient, but certainly it's safer. And so you want to try to find that good balance between efficiency and security. I've until recently will admit that I've continued to force myself to sign all the checks. And I have to tell you that part of it's not about financial control. Well, not financial control in terms of you're not paying two American Express accounts, but in terms of it gets me to look at the amount we're spending for each thing and sending questions back like, why are we paying this bill, right? And that's, you know, that's best done by somebody else at the law firm now. But historically, that was, you know, I founded the firm in 205. And that was always what really helped. And, you know, I found just simple things like I found, you know, I had a gal who was ordering supplies. And I think she just liked to shop online. And we were just this really small firm. And our supply budget was getting outrageous. And so then I set a budget for supplies. And I think it was like 500 bucks a month. And that has been my budget all these years later we never go over. It's like, here's the maximum amount you can spend on supplies. <laughs> but signing those checks does that for me. So what type of like, you know, we've talked about some obvious financial controls. What would be some examples of some less obvious that people don't think about as much? Um, the, the, the gold standard, which is hard for, especially for smaller practices to wrap their brains around, is, is certainly having um, credit worthiness uh, checks done on clients before engaging them. Um, yeah, there's a reason why um, the big law firms getting taken for a ride by bad clients um, makes headlines, but that's literally only the dollar amount. Quantitatively, in terms of how often that happens, you probably have way more smaller firms being taken for a ride. It's just less money. And so um, it's really important for firms to um, you know, hire one of these outside um, institutions like a Dun and Bradstreet uh, and others who can run um, weekly, if, if not more often, um, clients and their credit worthiness through the chipper and spit out a bill of health um, because it's just, again, good stewardship. Um, secondarily, um, <laughs> in this digital world, it's, uh, um, it's easy for us, um, just like bank racks, to get away from the building blocks of good compliance. Um, and so, you know, many law firms, again, to speed up um, to optimize the cash flow have begun accepting e-checks as well as um, credit cards. And that's great. I'm a huge believer in it. Um, but depending on your acceptance program, you may or may not be asked to uh, do a PCI compliance payment card um, industry, I think is PCI. Um, a PCI compliance check every year, um, which is really a function of how you're collecting the information, what you're doing with it, who has access to it, et cetera. And what's important about that is um, um, you should never, ever, never, ever write down anyone's um, credit card information, much less email it, even just to yourself, so that you can run the transaction later. 
it, it literally is a function of you do it real time on the system or you call the person back and what, when you can get to the system. Um, but too many places are sending around their clients credit card information to a variety of folks within their practice. And then secondarily, just because you accept credit cards doesn't mean and shouldn't mean that every single person in your practice is able to uh, run the credit card transactions. I mean, again, that would be the equivalent of everybody being able to sign checks. It's obvious for those of us who have been in the industry long enough to realize that's a stupid mistake. But we have people say, well, you know what, whoever happens to be around can run it if we all know how to do it and have access to the system. It should be a huge warning sign to folks. And so, you know, it, it seems like it's far-fetched until you're right in the crosshairs and you got nowhere to go. So a lot of times what I see in working with clients is that there's a problem that exists with financial controls and it takes a long time to figure it out. What are the kind of the early warning signs? What, how would you know when there's a problem? When, well, I would say primarily, and this kind of goes back to one of those um, initial basic things is review of financial statements um, on a periodic basis. Hey, look, if, if you can't come up with a financial statement, let's say even just monthly, um, then, then there's probably an issue and the, the stink starts to pervade the rim, right? And so um, that is one of the foundational reasons. It's not to try to make uh, lawyers feel like they don't know what they're doing by looking at financial statements. It's more to be able to demonstrate the fact that, yep, the financial statements are in order and thus so is the house. And so when, when um, there's a delay on those, it's time to start digging. Um, um, in, in exactly the same context as we've discussed before, when, when you have year end closing in, um, and in order to get taxes done, you've got <clears throat> somebody staying late, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, to do all of the bank recs for past months, like six to eight at a time, six months at six to eight months at a time, uh, in order to close out the year properly and then file taxes by April 15th. There's definitely a problem. Um, and then I, I would say in a, frankly, um, more offensive vein, when you have the folks at a practice who are making the most money um, in terms of draw or salary, um, those people having exorbitant, we all have it, that, that is a very subjective term, on purpose, but exorbitant reimbursements um, that none of the other folks who uh, share equity in the firm are aware of that are running through, um, that, that's a problem. And so um, it shouldn't be so much a function of, um, hey, you know, let's, let's all review each other's expense receipts, um, et cetera. Um, but it should be, okay, at the end of the year, um, everybody who's an owner and owner, and if there's if there's trust, let's at least just say here's what the totals are in terms of expense reimbursements for the year. Now, if you have some person whose client in Europe um, is having them come over four times a year, well, that explains what the issue is, uh, and that's not exorbitant necessarily, but um, um, 
you know, I think we all have a decent gauge on what that threshold of exorbitance is. And, um, and I think, you know, that those are good conversations to have in law practices, though they are unbelievably uncomfortable. They are unbelievably uncomfortable. And one of the things we design into our agreement, share, you know, our member agreements is that you know, generally any reasonable expense can be run through, but you know, if it does ever get disallowed by the IRS, you're paying the expenses of the audit and you're reimbursing for the cost of it. And there's been some changes in the rules about how expenses can be run through and the impact, if it, especially if it's a partnership that we won't cover today, but is worth just knowing. Well, John, so, you know, I'm a freak about financial controls, always have been, you know, watching businesses that I represent and the lack of control. And then a couple law firms that I had, you know, had exposure to. So if there's a law firm who says, hey, you know, we really do need to dig into having some better financial controls. Are there some good resources? Absolutely. Um, you know, just just stuff that you can dig up online for starters is really simple. Um, and, you know, oftentimes it, it can be helpful to um, have uh, resources that are not you know, legal related. And so uh, Corporate Finance Institute is, is a obvious and basic one, but it is still very rich in terms of content. Um, local business schools, I mean, they're all over the country, obviously, um, but I think that there, there um, are absolutely, you know, good courses that they offer even online nowadays that, that could be extremely helpful for owners of law firms and others. Um, when it comes to legal, uh, look, the ABA does a fabulous job with um, um, webinars and education, especially, you know, the law practice division that Mary and I both belong to, a little advertisement for the American Bar Association. Um, but in addition to that, um, the Practicing Law Institute, a competitor, frankly, probably of the American Bar Association, um, they do an annual, uh, if not more often, um, presentation on financial statements for lawyers. Um, and yeah, it's long. And yeah, it may be, it may get a little boring, but it's it's good to know and, and a good refresher. And then finally, in terms of um, in terms of items, um, you know, we always are thinking, well, you know, how do we educate the lawyers? Look, there's no reason why your financial staff also couldn't um, uh, attend either the ABA programs or the PLI programs. But specifically, um, there are some great uh, programs on uh, financial management and controls that are offered by the Association of Legal Administrators. Uh, in fact, there is a, uh, there are two multiple um, session courses that they offer on uh, financial management. I've been through it twice um, because it's so good um, and it's taught by folks in the profession uh, for the profession and they're all non-lawyers. Not that lawyers couldn't get something out of that as well, but um, there's plenty out there. And I'm pretty avid about having those that are involved in the financials that are non-lawyers get a lot of training, but I do also think there's can be a tendency to over delegate and not pay close enough attention by the owners of the firm sometimes. So I think it's super important that those financial discussions, financial statement reviews occur. Well, John, thanks a lot for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate your presence. Hey, you're welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Mary. 
As we get to the end of our episode, I want to thank our sponsors, Interactive Legal and Carson Private Client. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to this week's episode and stay tuned for our weekly releases. A Huda Media Production.